Good evening, church. And uh, it's been a while. And uh, my goodness, to be back with all of you, those who are listening uh, through our live feed, and also those of you who are in the room, it's so good to see. I had a chance to sit down. I was chatting with some folks, and uh, Scott Walker, one of our elders, had to come up and say, hey, it's time to start. Uh, so that tells you how hungry I am for relationship and just to see everyone. I can't wait until Sunday when there will be more that we can tune into and enjoy. And uh, so it's exciting. Great to be back. Uh, thank the Lord for, believe it or not, for the experience that I went through the last six weeks. Uh, I wouldn't want to do it again, and I wouldn't wish it on anyone. But uh, it, it's amazing what God can teach and how he, he loves us so much, and He provides, He protects uh, the provision that was given us by the church family, the meals in the evening that came to our home. My parents, my wife and I, we were so blessed every night, um, an amazing meal, wonderful food, and it came, you could tell it was made with love. And, and uh, that's what, to me, the church is all about. It's caring for one another, serving one another, helping one another. And there, there's, you know, it says in Galatians 6 that we, should, uh, that we should bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And then just down about two or three verses later, he says, bear your own load. And so it sounds like he's contradicting, but Paul's not doing that. Uh, the first time he says it, when we should bear one another's burdens, he, he's speaking of something that's beyond what is ordinary or normal for a person's life. It's something beyond the ordinary day that you go in. When you come into a, a tragedy, you come into a time of deep sorrow and mourning, or when you come down with uh, COVID, uh, it, that's not ordinary. That's something beyond. I've never had sickness like that before. But, but the body so lived out that passage for us, and it compels me to want to live out that passage with you. And I just can't wait to see all of you again. And I do hope that if uh, you're able and feel comfortable coming this Sunday, I hope you'll be there. We're going to have a great service. I'm excited about the message. I've been working on that in the afternoons each, each day this week and uh, looking forward to, to time with you. Uh, the, when Paul mentioned later in that same passage, he said, bear your own load. He was referring to something like a backpack. It's, it's something that's manageable. In other words, each of us every day should go out and work. Okay, that's a load, but that's what we're supposed to carry. It's not something that someone else does for us. We each provide food. We provide shelter. Those, that, that's, a, that's a regular load that we carry, and so we should carry that on our own. And, and many of you have been doing that. You've been bearing a load on your own, and you're, you're trying to make it through a very difficult time, a time when people are facing layoffs, others, uh, not, their hours have been cut back. Some have, uh, are looking for different types of new work because this is such a strange season that we're in. But, but the reality is, church, we, we're, hey, God loves us. God's with us. We don't face any of this apart from God. In Deuteronomy, I think it's 6, it actually says God was speaking through Moses to the children of Israel right before they enter the promised land. And he said, just remember this, that I will never leave you or forsake you. That's what God, that's how he feels about us. 
And so we can count on that. Well, tonight we're going to launch right into our Revelation series again. I think the last time that I taught was probably six weeks ago on a Thursday night. So we've been out of Revelation for a while. I can't start without, first of all, thanking uh, all those who filled the pulpit on Thursday night teaching Bible study to the body of Christ. It's wonderful to be in a church that has a lot of good Bible teachers, and I'm thankful for each and every one of them and appreciate them, so thank you. But let's begin with prayer tonight. Father, we come before you, and, and, and the, the very first thing in prayer, the most important thing we can do is what Jesus told us to do in prayer, that hallowed be thy name, that we should think of our Father in heaven, and we should worship Him. We should worship Him for who He is. And we do that tonight, Lord. We've, we're thankful tonight that there is not any situation that any of us are facing that you're not fully aware of. You are a sovereign God. And you're a good God. The Bible says that you're good. And that means that everything that you do comes out of your nature of holiness and justice and love. And therefore, you make right choices all the time. Sometimes we look at things that happen and we think, man, God made a bad choice there. But honestly, we only see one side of the story. You see past, present, and future of that situation, and you make the right decision every time. And so, Lord, help us to trust you when things don't look right. Help us to trust you in those days when we're not feeling well and we don't know where this, where this is leading. Help us to put our faith and trust in you, Lord, and to know that you are a God that cares deeply for us. Lord, we pray for those who are hurting, those who are facing a job issue, uh, looking for a job or lost their job or had their hours cut back and now they don't uh, make enough, bring enough home to, to pay the bills. We pray, Lord, that you would send us the body around them to undergird them, encourage them, and help them, Lord. I pray that, Lord, you would use us as your hands and your feet to express your love to them in this time. And Lord, I pray that as a body, we would open up to the leaders of our church and pray with them and lay things down at the foot of the cross so that we can go forward knowing that our God has a plan in the future. And we pray this all. And Lord, now I pray that tonight in our Revelation study that we'd continue to grow and learn and that we would be able to be better disciples. We would live out the scripture because we've learned it. We know it. We would understand how to apply it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, tonight we're in Revelation chapter 6, and we're going to finish up, believe this or not, we're going to finish up chapter 6, 12, uh, verses 12 through 17, and then we're going to go through the entire book or the entire chapter of 17. So we're going to cover a lot of territory tonight, and I'm excited about it. I, I, I think uh, we'll be able to do this and do it uh, in a timely way, in a concise way. Uh, Revelation chapter 6, verse 12, When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. In the Bible, throughout the Bible, Celestial disturbances are often connected uh, with the coming of the Messiah. 
In Isaiah, we see that. In Jeremiah, we see it. In Ezekiel, we see this. Joel, Zephaniah. And listen, Jesus himself describes such events. So the Bible's very familiar with these celestial responses where something happens at a cataclysmic level in the heavens and it's triggered by God. And, you know, I'm not saying that every earthquake, every uh, hurricane, every uh, uh, tsunami is driven by God to, with a meaning behind it. I, I think sometimes those events happen because we live in a fallen world and the world is simply falling apart. And we, we see the fallout of that. But we don't ever want to remove from the equation what God can do and has done in the past throughout the Bible and can do in our day and even towards the end of days. Example would be of one of these events would be, take your Bible, church, and turn to Zephaniah chapter 1. Zephaniah chapter 1 and verse 14. And then go ahead and take another finger and put it in Joel chapter 2. So verse Zephaniah chapter 1 and then Joel chapter 2. And let's cover these if we can tonight. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, it says, If the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast, the sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud, and a day of wrath uh, is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. So here, uh, Zephaniah is prophesying of these types of days that happen, and one's about to happen. Another example is in Joel chapter 2, and look at verse 10. It says, The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, uh, the sun and the moon and, and are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters His voice before His army, for His camp is exceedingly great, and He executes His word, I'm sorry, and He, and who, exe he who executes His word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome, who can endure it? So this earthquake that we see in Revelation 12, when it opened the sixth seal, I looked and there was a great earthquake and the sun. Now, now you're, talking about, you're talking about something that affects the whole earth, not just the, not just the California coast here, okay? Uh, the, the moon is, becomes like blood. The stars are going to fall from the sky. This is a major event. And let me just say to you that that means that this earthquake is not going to be a regional earthquake. This is going to be an earthquake that shakes the entire earth. If you can think of all the fault lines on all the continents, they're going to all shake at the same time. Maybe they're triggered, one triggers another and another and another, and they fall like dominoes. But this thing is going to be bigger than any kind of earthquake that we've experienced on the earth. The only earthquake I can think of that, that would be likened to it is what happened in the Great Flood, where as the rains came down and the earth began to flood, but the Bible says that God 
opened up the springs beneath the ocean floor. And it was through earthquakes that were hitting all over, all over the earth. And literally, the waters came from underneath as well as falling from the sky. And that's how they were able to cover every single mountain. And I do believe that mountains were created. I believe that, that hills and valleys were created. Whatever existed before, and I don't know what it looked like, and I'm not saying that there weren't mountains, that God couldn't create a mountain in the beginning. He can do that if he chooses to. But, but with this kind of an eruption, the think about the strength and the power of a spring being forced out coming up and how it would move the ocean floor and could easily cause the ocean to rise or the floor to rise and literally peek out of the, out of the, uh, the water. And uh, it was so much water that it covered the earth by 10 feet. The highest mountain was covered by 10 feet. There was nothing on the earth that you could see. And uh, so that's an amazing earthquake. Well, uh, this is going to be greater. We're talking about the day of the Lord. We're talking about the return of the Lord, the apocalypsis of Christ, the, 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 the full revelation of Christ when he returns. And, and, and this sixth seal starts with this earthquake. Okay, uh, verse 12, uh, the latter part of the verse, the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, the stars of the sky uh, fell to the earth. <laughs> we need to remember that John wasn't trained in precise scientific language when he wrote this down. John is simply writing what he sees in his vernacular, in, his, in his, uh, the words he understands, his vocabulary. And he's trying to describe supernatural events with a natural mind. Now, I believe God is the one who inspired him in his writing, but he's writing out of what he understands. And so how can a man who's finite with a finite brain possibly explain something that's not of this world? It's, it's infinite. And that's what's happening here. So just keep that in mind. John's giving us what he knows. So it's best to regard these images, even though there's, po there's a poetic theme to it, it's, it's, it's real. These are images that are as real as they can possibly be. He's just describing what he's seeing. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Think about that. Uh, the Earth's atmosphere will be somehow dramatically affected, and the sky as we know it will disappear. Then the king, look at verse 15, then the kings of the Earth, now think, that just happened, okay? Uh, the earthquake, this great earthquake, the sky, the, the moon goes dark, uh, red like blood, the, sky, the stars are falling from the sky. All of this is happening and it says, then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free. So you go from those who are on the bottom to those who are at the very top. They all, every single one of them, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. All the people are equally brought low, listen, by God's wrath. And that's what we see happening in all of these 
you know, in Revelation, if I can just give you a, a, a quick summary, and we're going to cover a little bit more of it later, I just made some observations that I want to share with you to help you understand Revelation. And by the way, uh, Jesus said you're blessed if you read it, if you read this book. Uh, there's a reason for it. I don't know why most Christians have never read it. Well, they've never read it because the churches have never preached it. And, and this is the only book in the whole Bible where in the beginning of the book and the end of the book, it says you're blessed if you read it. No other book says that. So I think God wants us to read it. But I want to tell you that uh, what's, what's happening is this, you know, this whole thing is triggered in the Great Tribulation. And that's where we see the, the seals. There are, there are three uh, sets of judgments that God's going to bring to the earth. The first set are the seals. Who can open the great scroll that God has in heaven? Who can break the seals on the scroll? Well, we know that Jesus, the Lamb of God, comes forward, and He's the only one who can break the seals. And heaven breaks out in rejoicing as He opens up the scroll. And so now there are seven seals. These are seven pictures of a judgment from the beginning of the Great Tribulation to the very end. It's almost like an overview, a summary, the seven seals. But then the six, as you come into the seventh seal, it literally activates or triggers the first seal of the, trump, or of the uh, bowls and trumpets, which are the next set of seals. And so you've got this thing happening where you go from seven judgments to seven judgments to seven more judgments, 21 judgments of God that He brings to the earth. Why? Because now it's time for Christ to reveal Himself fully to the world and to deal with sin and the sinner. And when Jesus comes back the next time, you know, at His first coming, He came as a humble little baby lying in a manger. I mean, He didn't even have a, a decent bed, didn't have a decent building to protect Him. He came in humility. He came in flesh, and he was vulnerable, and, and he came with mercy. He came to preach a message that the kingdom of heaven is, is at hand. He was trying to forewarn people that there's only one way to receive salvation, only one way, and that is through Messiah, that is through himself. And of course, the very people who, who know the prophetic message of the Old Testament regarding Messiah rejected him. They rejected him. So on his first, first visit, he came in humility to show people what God is like. He walked in mercy. He walked in love. He also walked in truth and justice. He never ignored sin. And, and, but the next time that he comes, he will not come back with grace and mercy. The next time he appears, he comes riding on a white steed and he will have blood up to the bridle of his horse, the Bible says. He's coming to bring the, ju the judgment and the justice of God to the earth for all sin. Now, he already went to the cross and paid for sin, for all sin. 
But the sinner who has rejected him has not received his payment for sin. And that sinner will face justice before God. That's what this is speaking of here. Okay? So, the scholar Torrance said, It is the wrath of love, the wrath of sacrificial love, which, having done the absolute utmost for us and our salvation, tells us, as nothing else could, the certainty with which evil awaits its doom at the hand of God. God has done everything He can. If you reject God, then all that's left for you is righteous indignation from the Father. And He's going to come, and He's not going to come with mercy. He's coming with judgment. I, I would not want to be in that position, would you? And all of these 21 judgments that we see in Revelation are about that. They're all about judgment coming. Okay. Now, what's, what's good to know and, and what we need to understand, even while these judgments are taking place on the earth, God has, a, has numerous ways of continuing to preach the gospel. So even after the tribulation begins, God's still preaching the gospel. He's preaching the gospel through the two witnesses. He's preaching the gospel through the 144,000, which we're going to study tonight. He's preaching the gospel through the angels that are going through the sky, declaring that God is just in what He's doing. Turn to God. Repent of your... I mean, the whole way through all the judgments that are coming, God's still reaching out with grace and mercy. The grace and mercy ceases when Jesus returns. It's over. <laughs> it's over. The great day of the Lord. So this is really an exciting uh, study right now, and we're, in a, we're a very, at a very crucial, uh, important uh, place in, in Revelation. So, uh, verse 16, Calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? So all the kings, all the captains of armies, the greatest, the most powerful leaders of the earth, all the way down to those who are still in slavery on the earth, every one of them crying out, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated. They're actually not. In fact, the trumpets do not follow the seals in a strict chronological order, neither do the bowls follow the trumpets in a strict order. Okay? Think of the first six seals as a summary of the judgments distributed over the whole book, a brief summary of what will occur in the day of the Lord up to the time of His actual unveiling. Okay, so the first six seals, it's a summary of everything. Revelation of the Antichrist, that's the first seal, is when Antichrist shows up on the scene. That's, that's uh, three and a half years into the the seven, year, uh, seven years of tribulation, okay? And it concludes with the revealing of, of Christ Himself sitting on the throne. It's important to note that the sealed judgments, while they speak of directly of these conditions and events that will come during the tribulation, all the way to the end when the Lord returns, there's also a very real sense that they represent past, present, and future events. So, Here's what I'm saying. These seals, 
many of these that, we, that we've already covered, we've already seen those, some of those events take place on the earth. Not to the magnitude of this prophecy that's going to happen in the future, but we've seen some of these things that have already happened. Let me tell you, the first seal, remember back, if we go back, you got war. First you had false peace. Have we ever seen false peace before? Yes, we have. Then you have war. Have we ever seen war before? Yes, you have. Uh, famine, have we ever seen famine? Death, have we ever seen death? Have there been periods of history where millions of people died because of a plague? Yes, we've already seen that. And persecution throughout all history. But listen, some people will say, well, that's the point. The point is that all the seals are speaking of all the history, all that's happened from the time Christ ascended into heaven until He returns. Well, there are pictures of those, there are types of those, but we do not believe that what we're hearing today in the six seals, that those events uh, are fulfilled yet. There's still a greater magnitude of fulfillment of those seals to come. Okay, So we've had dictators, we've had war, we've had famine, we've had uh, all these things throughout history, but not to the magnitude and the severity with which they will be presented in the Great Tribulation. Now, this is not the case with some of the trumpets and the, and the bowls judgment, the, the, the trumpet and bowl judgments that you'll find in later chapters here. Uh, they are completely unique manifestations of God's judgment, okay? So those are things that have not happened, okay? Just, just as the seals have happened, the bowls and judgments have not yet happened. And interestingly enough, uh, we're going to start looking at the trumpets in chapter, seven, or chapter 8. Chapter 7 is like a, uh, a, a halftime show. It's, we just had the seals, and now there's a break, and, and what they're going to do is tell us in chapter 7 <clears throat> about the 144,000. And it, basically what it's telling you is who survives and who uh, ends up in heaven because they were faithful to God. You're going to see the 144,000 spoken of, and then they're going to speak of, they're going to speak of uh, those who went through persecution. They're going to speak of the great multitude in heaven, which is what? The church. The church. So we're going to study that next, okay? But uh, this, this, the last seal, in this, uh, the sixth seal that we just studied, it really comes down to a question, and the question is this. Who is able to stand? Remember how that started the whole thing out before the seals were opened? There was nobody who could open the seals. John was even crying over it. And the elder stopped him and said, wait a second, hey, the lamb he can open the seal. And the Lamb walks over in the throne room of God to this, to this scroll that has seals on it. And, and it's literally what John saw was a Lamb. We know who it is, right? Who's the Lamb of God? Jesus Christ. But He's not in the image of Christ as we saw Him walking on the earth. He's, he's a Lamb. And interestingly enough, it's a lamb, the Bible says, that looks as if it's been slain because he was slain for us. He bore our sins and he took all the pain, all the suffering, all the judgment of God on us. He put, took it on, on himself. And so, so the lamb goes over and he opens the seal. He opens. And guess what? Here's the deal. As we look at the six seals, or the last seal, um, Who's worthy to open? Guess what? You are. 
I am. Because we are found in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Here's what I mean by that. I'm not saying that you're going to open a seal. I'm saying that you will be, literally, you will go from this life, your physical body will die like this. And then you will immediately be in the presence of God in, on His throne in the temple in heaven. Immediately. What Jesus opened, you inherited the benefit of that. Does that not encourage your heart tonight? There's no delay. When a believer dies in the Lord, there's no delay. And, and it's not like, okay, well, I hope I, the day that I die, I hope I do good things. I hope I don't sin. Listen to me. What Jesus Christ has sealed, and by, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit has been put in you, given to you when you're saved, and that Holy Spirit now is your guarantee that you are a citizen of heaven. There is no sin that you commit from that point forward that can keep you from Jesus and keep you from God the Father. Amen. Hallelujah. Only thing sin can do in this world to a believer is it just hinders the fellowship. If you go out and commit sin, the last thing you want to do is have fellowship with God. You don't feel like having fellowship with God. But in terms of your eternal salvation, there's nothing in this world that can possibly take that from you. You're saved. Praise God. I love that. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Listen to this. Write it down. Write down Romans 5, 1. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, not by your works, you've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's another one, 1 Corinthians 15.1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, listen now, in which you stand. You stand in it. See, this salvation that we've experienced does two things for us. One, it consoles us to know with confidence that we now belong to God. And never again question that, saint. Never again question that. But it also does a second thing. It challenges us. Our salvation challenges us. Why? Because now we belong to the Lord now live your life for Him. Not because you fear that if you don't live for Him that you'll lose your salvation, but because you are overjoyed that He has saved you and He's given you His name and He's put a purpose within you to fulfill. So there's the challenge. 1 Peter 5.12, I have written briefly to you, Peter said, to the church, <coughs> exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. And then he says, stand firm in it. He's not saying you can lose it. He's just saying, do something with it. Let your life count for something in this world. Amen. The believer can stand in the face of this great wrath of God because Jesus already bore the wrath that we deserved. Hallelujah. All right, let's go to chapter 7. 
That's chapter 6. Let's go to chapter 7. Let me see how we're doing on time. Oh, man, we got the whole night. This is exciting. Okay. Chapter 7 forms, as I said, like a halftime. It's like a parenthesis between the sixth seal in chapter 6, verse 12 through 17 that we just studied, and the seventh seal that starts in chapter 8, verse 1, and answers the question posed at the end of chapter 6. Two distinct groups will survive this divine fury coming from heaven. The first group, the 144,000 Jews who I believe and many scholars believe are evangelists that, God's, that God raises up on this earth. And the other group that survives is the converts that they bring into heaven. Now, they don't, people aren't saved because of the evangelists. Nobody gets saved because of Billy Graham. But when Billy Graham is faithful to the Word of God and the grace of God and the gospel of God, people get saved by that. Amen? And they go to heaven. Well, the same is true for these 144,000 Jewish evangelists. Revelation chapter 7, verse 1. Here it is. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. And then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun. That would be the east, right? With the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Okay? So first of all, four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. That phrase, four corners uh, of the earth, that's, that's an ancient phrase. It's not something from our day. It's been around forever. And sometimes we use it today. But it's the equivalent to the idea of the four points of a compass. Okay? The idea is that these angels affect the entire earth. We know there's no four corners on a round earth, right? But that's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's simply a picture of something greater, and that is the four points of the compass. Now, holding back the four winds of the earth, these winds were a destructive force of God's judgment as they often are in the Old Testament. An example would be in Hosea 13, 15. Uh, again, the winds speaking of a destructive force of judgment. In Hosea 13, 15, it says, Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord, shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up, his spring shall be parched, and shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. God bringing judgment. Now, it's plausible that the four winds of the earth may refer back to the four horsemen of Revelation 6, 1 through 8. Okay? After the pattern of Zechariah, which was, is, I think it's Zechariah 6, around verse 1. I think it starts the whole chapter. In that passage, four chariots with horses uh, of the same color as Revelation 6.1 go out to all the earth, and they are called the four spirits of heaven. Spirits in that passage translates the Hebrew word ruach, R-U-A-C-H, which can also be translated wind, breath, or wind. Okay? And so... So th these are just different times where God has literally used wind as He's brought judgment to the earth. Then look, go back to our text, verse 2 in chapter, uh, chapter 7. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, 
with the seal of the living God. So this angel ascends from the east. This angel has a seal, and he sealed the people of God. He did it on their forehead. In the ancient world, these types of seals were very familiar to them. This is not a new thing. Don't think this is a one-time deal. A king or a property owner could use a seal to show ownership or authenticity. And they would oftentimes use it. And he called with a loud voice, the last part of the verse, too, to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea. And he said, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So now we get to this study on the 144,000. Who are they? Okay, we're going to study that. Revelation 14.1. Just write it down. Revelation 14.1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So there's the reference. Here we are in chapter 7 seeing it. And, and the Bible is defending itself. In chapter 14, we see the same thing. Now, in Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4, there's a similar protective seal that was given to the righteous before Jerusalem was judged. So this isn't the first time that God has sealed someone. We're not told what exactly their service is, this 144,000 that are sealed for a spe specific and unique purpose. Uh, but we know that this is not a one-time seal that God has used. He's used it in other places in the Bible. In fact, Jesus was sealed. Did you know that? Jesus was sealed. If you, if you want the passage, it's John chapter 6, verse 27. Go ahead and turn. Let's, let's read it together. Literally, God the Father set His seal on Jesus, His Son. John 6, 27, <clears throat> it says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Listen now, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. Interesting. So don't think for a second that the 144,000 are getting a seal from God. And this is the first time it's ever happened. God did the same with Christ. Let me go a little further with you, Okay. Uh, brace yourself, hold on to your chair. You are sealed by God. You are sealed by God. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit as a down payment of our eventual total redemption. Let me tell you, here, here's the picture of, of the gospel. If you want to know the gospel, or somebody's sharing the gospel and they don't share all these elements, they're missing pieces of the gospel. The first part of the gospel is the fall. The second part of the gospel, well, first, the first part is actually God creating everything good and perfect. There's the fall, and then there's what? What happens? There's salvation. There's redemption. After redemption, restoration. God takes what was broken by sin, and He puts it back together. He turns you and I, we go from sinner Back to what? Saint. That's how God sees you. That's who you are from heaven's view. You're no longer a sinner, even though you sin every day. You're a saint because Christ Jesus washed away your sin. You are now found in Him, whole, complete in Christ. Now, 
Here's the deal. But that wholeness and completeness doesn't find its finality in you until you get to heaven. So you're in a process. It's called sanctification. It follows salvation. Sanctification is the process whereby you yield your life every day to the Holy Spirit and His work in you is to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's why Peter said that uh, it's good for us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Every day. Some days we grow more than others. Some days we regress. I have my days of regression. Can anybody say amen to that? Okay. But I'm still on the path, my friend, because I didn't secure the path for myself. Listen, God sealed me on that path. The Holy Spirit has been put inside of me so that every day that is my reminder that I'm guaranteed wholeness and completeness when I get to heaven. And every day on this earth, I'm going to walk in a way in which the Holy Spirit can conform me more and more to the image of Jesus. Beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. So, this sealing of the Holy Spirit belongs to every believer, and, uh, and, and, and you have it, I have it. Ephesians 1.13 says, In Him you also win... You heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. In 2 Corinthians 1.21 it says, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also, here it is, put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So the Bible reiterates the fact that you too have been sealed, just like the 144,000 that are going to be raised up by God in the last days as Jewish evangelists to reach this earth in a day of judgment. Praise God for that. 2 Timothy 2.19, But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who, who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. <coughs> so there's that challenge we talked about earlier. There's this salvation that we've come into. We didn't earn it. We didn't do anything for it. All we did was surrender to it. Christ did the work. He died in my place. He paid for my sins. He gives me His righteousness. Now all I have to do is trust Him by faith and take the challenge. Live in a way. By, the, by, by, by obeying the Holy Spirit who is every day trying to conform me more and more to Jesus. Ephesians 4.30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. It doesn't say you'll lose your salvation. It just says that it's possible while you're still here to grieve the Holy Spirit. When you and I don't choose to follow God, when we disobey God as believers, it grieves the Spirit of God. So it, it basically, it just means you wasted a day. <laughs> you wasted a day. You're not growing. It, it messes with your fellowship because you know it's hard to think of yourself as being able to go to a God when you just sinned. But the reality is you can. 
The Bible says, come boldly before the throne of grace and, re and receive help in your time of need. Is there any greater need than forgiveness? You can boldly go before God. Why? Because you belong to Him. He, he's your father. You're, you're His child. And so you can recover from the sin that you, that you commit. You don't have to worry about it taking away your relationship with God. But i got to tell you, when I sin, I don't feel like wanting to be with God in fellowship. Right? It hurts. It hinders it. So that's, that's, why, that's, why, that's how we grieve the Holy Spirit. Verse 4 in our text, And I heard the number of the sealed, this is John, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. He just goes down and he lists out the tribes of, of Judah or of Israel, and he lists them all out. And, uh, and so the 144,000 are all the tribes of the children of Israel that were sealed. And this is their general identification. He, you know, he breaks it down. 144,000 divided among the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay? Now, I want you to note that the tribe of Dan is not there. It's left out. Some think this is because Dan is, is the tribe of the Antichrist, based on Daniel 11.37 and Jeremiah 8.16. This may or may not be the case. I don't know. But without a doubt, Dan was the tribe that introduced idolatry to God's people. We're actually going to cover that this Sunday in the book of Judges. The tribe of Dan introduced idolatry to, the, to God's people. So maybe they were left out for that reason alone. But, but let me just encourage you with this. There's a wonderful redemption story behind the tribe of Dan. Dan is the first tribe listed in Ezekiel's millennial roll call of the tribes, Ezekiel 48. It's also interesting how the tribe of Ephraim is referred to, but only indirectly, not by name. The tribe of Joseph is mentioned, but Joseph was represented by two tribes. They were rep represented by Ephraim and Manasseh. Since the tribe of Manasseh is mentioned here, by elimination, the tribe of Joseph must mean the tribe of Ephraim. Why didn't God just call them the tribe of Ephraim? Guess what? Uh, they too were associated with great idolatry. They're in, but there's a mark. You know, you and I can go through life. We can be a Christian. But how we conduct our, ourselves, how we carry our, our words and fulfillment of the words and, and keeping our word, how we behave, it can be a positive that leads people to Christ or we can turn people away from Christ. And I'll tell you, I, it doesn't mean you'll lose your salvation, but you know what? This world, they see you differently than the way God sees you. You're marked. You've done something that now hinders. Now, it's never too late to correct it. Go to the people that have been hurt by your behavior, hurt by your lack of, of keeping promises, and confess your sin to them. Ask their forgiveness. But God marked these folks for some reason. Well, anyway, 
uh, Ephraim's name might have been left off because of the, the idolatry. In fact, Hosea 4.17 says, Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. God never said that to any other tribe. The whole tribe. Joined to idols. Leave them alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. In other words, they brought judgment upon themselves. One of the judgments of God is you're not going to be listed by name in the 144,000. Some believe this list must be purely symbolic because it's irregular. But, but what is a regular listing of the tribes? Because in the Old Testament, there's no less than 20 different lists. <laughs> uh, just because a list is different doesn't mean it has to be treated as symbolic. It's right to regard each of these lists as legitimate and to consider that each specific variation serves a purpose or meaning to emphasize something important. So who are these 144,000? Many different groups have claimed to be the 144,000. You probably think immediately of the Jehovah Witness. For example, early in the early days of the Jehovah Witness, they said, we are the 144,000 until their number exceeded 144,000. And then they changed it and said, well, certain ones in of the Jehovah Witness are going to be the 144,000. So they made it fit what they wanted it to say. Most Bible scholars either regard the 144,000 as the church or as converted Jews who are still identified as Israelites in some manner. Uh, I think it's important to distinguish the difference between the church and the tribes of, 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 of Israel. Uh, if they are a symbol of the church, the 144,000, that means the church is going to be on the earth during the tribulation. Now, listen, let me just say this. Uh, you, shouldn't, you and I need to be careful not to take the position, well, I don't want to be here for that. Well, nobody does, including the people that are. But that is also a time for us to witness on the earth. That's what all the people who come to Christ after the tribulation begins are going to do. They're going to be, remain faithful to God. They're going to witness, and they're going to become martyrs. Are you saying as a Christian, no, I don't want to be, are you saying you don't want to be a martyr? By the way, Peter said if you're not a martyr, if you're not a martus, you're not a Christian. It doesn't mean that if you aren't murdered for Christ that you're not a Christian. It means that if you're not willing to go all the way to death for the sake of Christ, Peter said you're probably not a Christian. So we got to be careful when we respond thinking about the fact that the church, and we, I believe that the church is going to be raptured out before the tribulation. But if it's not, if it's true, some of these scholars who think the 144,000 are Christians, certain Christians, we should be honored to stay and preach the gospel and pay whatever price comes our way for the sake of Christ. Does that make sense? Now, I don't believe that it's referencing the church. I do believe the church will be raptured before this happens. So I believe that the 144,000 are Jews, 
and I believe, and I don't, this is plausible, I can't say with fact that this is the, well, I can in an indirect way. We know that <laughs> these 104, <laughs> excuse me, <clears throat> these 144,000 are going to remain for a purpose, and the purpose is to share the gospel on the earth and reach other Jews for Christ and Gentiles. And, and so, so they are evangelists. That's just another way of saying it. But these 144,000 are Jewish evangelists that God's going to raise up after we're gone. And the other group that chapter 7 speaks of is the great multitude, which are, many of those are, the result of the 144,000 evangelistic Jews preaching the gospel on the earth. They're in heaven because of them. That's pretty exciting when you think about it. But let's look at some of the facts surrounding the 144,000 that are mentioned here in Revelation. By the way, it's mentioned a whole lot more than just in chapter 7. They are called the children of Israel in chapter 7. They're called, uh, their, their, their tribal affiliation is specific. In other words, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. Revelation 7, 4. They seem to be protected and triumphed triumphant through the period of God's wrath, meeting with Jesus at Mount Zion at His return, Revelation 14.1. In Revelation 14.4, they are celibate. They're celibate. In, in Revelation 14.4, they are the beginning of a greater harvest than anything we've seen on the earth. The greatest harvest of souls will happen during the tribulation. Think about the great movements of God. Think about the great awakenings where people have turned to God. Nothing like it has ever happened yet, like what's going to happen in the end. They are marked by integrity and faithfulness in Revelation 14.5. So when you take these facts into consideration, it makes it very difficult to say that the church is the picture of the 144,000. It makes all sense that it's the Jews who God raises up, the 12,000 from each tribe. Okay? Uh, so, uh, they, they are not part, by the way, of, of the church proper. Uh, the, the church is gone. The church age has ended when God raises up the 144,000. So don't think of them as being part of an extension of the church. They're not. They're not the church. Okay? They're, they're Jews who have turned to God, and God has raised them up, and He has sealed them to preach the gospel on the earth and face whatever outcome happens. And they will be with us in heaven. And we will all be one in heaven. Amen? But, but don't, don't, don't become lazy in your vocabulary of understanding here that you use terminology like, yeah, the, the 144,000, that'll be the future church. That's the group that you know, that God raises... No, it's not. It's, it's specific. It's Jews that God raises up. Here's, let me tell you why it's important that you say that. Because the Jews need to hear that today. Your Jewish friends need to hear that. They need to know that God uh, is going to raise up Jews who will believe Jesus is Messiah. 144,000. 12,000 from every tribe and every Jew today belongs to one of those 12 tribes. You see the significance of it? Why we need to speak the truth to them? Very important. Very important. Okay, verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, 
Here it is, this second part of Revelation 7. A great multitude that no one could number, wow, <laughs> from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. Basically, anybody who's been on the earth, okay, of every tribe, every nation, every language, it's, it's, it's this multitude that can't be numbered. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So the diversity here is evidence that the Great Commission will be fulfilled before the end, even as Jesus promised in Matthew 24. John gives an insight into the people who are going to be in heaven. He identifies that this great multitude came from different nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. We know that there will be differences among people in heaven just as there are on earth. We will not all be the same in heaven. He, this is what John's seeing in heaven. He's seeing different nations, tribes, and tongues. So in heaven, when we get to heaven, people are unique. We're not all... You ever had that somebody... Or maybe it just comes to your mind that we're all the same. Nobody... You know, we don't see any differences in anybody anymore, you know? Not true. Everybody is an individual in heaven that God loves. Every individual matters to God in heaven, in heaven. It will never be that way on this earth, that we love and respect everyone equally. We live in a fallen world, and that will not happen on this in this world. No matter how much we want world peace, only world peace we're going to get is a false world peace. But in heaven, man, oh man, oh man. Look at verse 9 again, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. It's interesting how John saw everything in heaven in reference to the throne of God. <laughs> That's the centerpiece. Spurgeon, C.H. Spurgeon said, this is a peculiar subject of their joy, that God has a throne, that He sits upon it, and that He ruleth over all things, and all things do His bidding. The central thought of heaven, then, is divine sovereignty. When we're in heaven, that'll be the focus, God's divine sovereignty over all of us. All these different kinds of people, different places, and all we all have our own story of salvation, but man, our focus is not on us. It's not on a certain tribe or a certain people. It's on the sovereignty of our God, the throne of God. Clothed in white robes. Let's, let's talk about that for a second. These robes remind us not only of the covering righteousness that we receive through Christ, but it also speaks of priestly service. We're prepared for holy service in heaven. And then it says, with palm branches in their hands, these remind us of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, where Jesus was also praised as Savior and King. By the way, the word Hosanna that the people said when Jesus came into, into Jerusalem, it means save now. Save now. And palm branches were emblems of victory. It shows that this great multitude is celebrating a great victory. Again, let me go back to Spurgeon. He had some really good things to say out of chapter 7. He said, We had to conclude that the Lord would not have distributed the prize unless there had been a preceding warfare and victory. Hallelujah! 
<laughs> the battle's been won. From the very fact that the glorified carry palms, we may infer that they did not come from beds of sloth or gardens of pleasure or palaces of peace, but that they endured hardness and were men trained for war. And guess what? They survived. God brought them through. They are in heaven now. They're victors in Christ. And crying out loud, or I'm sorry, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Having an emblem of righteousness, white robes, they worship God for salvation. They recognize that God is the source of salvation and no one else can provide their salvation for them. Salvation isn't something we earn, it is something God gives. Sometimes we take our salvation for granted, don't we? Not, no one in heaven ever takes salvation for granted. They're constantly focused on the throne, the one who granted their salvation to them. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So all the angels, all the elders, the four living creatures, they join in with this multitude. Can you imagine what this sounded like as they all sing the same song? This great multitude worshiping God, the others in heaven, compelled to join their voices in praise. All created beings around the throne join in. You know, I've, I've had the privilege of being in settings uh, as a boy and as an adult that moved me deeply in worship. <clears throat> when I was a kid, you know, you'd go to a camp meeting and people just seemed to sing louder at a camp meeting. Everybody sings out, you know. Those, there were some great, great experiences there. And then <laughs> I had the privilege of going out to uh, uh, a church in Sun Valley, California, John MacArthur, and hearing an all-male choir. There must have been a, you know, 80 voices. And then they had the organ, the big organ, you know, and they had the, 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 the worship leader. And then the place was filled with 3,500 pastors. And all of us began to sing hymns like I've never sang them before. And I just thought, this has to be like heaven. Well, could you imagine what a great multitude that you cannot count and all the heavenly beings joining in, singing over the salvation of the Lord. We, we've never heard, if you say, if I say to you, can you just imagine what that must sound like? I can just tell you the answer. No, you cannot. Because you're not there, right? This is finite. That's infinite. Whoo! This excites me to think about. My mom loves to play the piano. She'll, she'll, her piano is being sent down from North Carolina probably in the next couple weeks. And she'll go into that back room and she'll just sit down and start playing. She'll play for an hour just playing music. My dad just sits there and listens and weeps, you know, and sings along. And they just have, they have worship together, you know, with that piano. And, and that is pure. It's beautiful. I can't imagine when I'm in heaven, I look over and see my mom, what she's going to be feeling 
experiencing that level of worship. My dad, as they are experiencing that level of worship. Wow! Isn't that awesome? Amen. Amen. It says in verse 13, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in the white robes, and from where they have come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. By the way, let me just qualify this. The word the, right before great tribulation, in the original language, doesn't read that way. Let me read it for you the correct way. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So this vast multitude from every tribe and tongue and nation are those rescued for God's kingdom in the period of the tribulation. You talk about people who are thankful to be saved. Oh, they were in the tribulation. They were seeing the judgments of God, the wrath of God all around them. And they heard the two witnesses. They heard the 144,000 or one of them. And they were saved. And they are now in heaven. And they're like rejoicing. By the way, they were probably martyred. They were probably killed for their faith. But now they're in heaven rejoicing. They have such appreciation that God would reach them and save them from their sin. Uh, verse 14 again, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. I think it's interesting to note that those saved in the Great Tribulation are saved just like everybody else by the blood of the Lamb. They were not saved because they endured. They were not saved because they were martyred. They are not saved because they lived in the period of the Great Tribulation. Just like you and I, they are saved because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. All people in heaven are there for that reason. No other. No other. Not one of them became white through his tears of repentance. Not one through the shedding of blood of bulls or of goats. The only effective sacrifice is the death of Jesus Christ. Their robes were washed in the blood of the Lamb. Praise God. Therefore, they are before the throne of God in our text, verse 15, and serve Him day and night in His temple, and He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Jesus is our good shepherd. Is He not on this earth? Is He not there for us in our time of great need? Does He not come near to us? The Bible tells us this. We can, you say, well, I can't experience, I haven't experienced that, I don't feel that. It doesn't matter if you feel it or not. The Bible says it's true, therefore it's true. It's a promise of God that He's with us here, okay, on this earth. Yet, in heaven, we will see Him as He is, the Good Shepherd, and we will experience at a much deeper, intense level his care, His love, His provision, His protection. And most of all, I love at the end, that He will wipe away every tear. Some people think that that means it's speaking of tears that we have in heaven because we look back on our life and we have great uh, remorse for the sins we committed. That we're, 
and, and some people preach that because it does work with guilt and shame really well to make somebody feel guilt. But it's not what the text says at all. It, it, what, it, what it's referring to is the fact that you are now in the presence of God and you have come through suffering. Many of these were martyred for Christ's sake. And so it's probably tears of suffering. Because one minute they're being put to death, they're being, their heads being cut off, whatever, however, they, lowered into boiling oil as one of the disciples. And the next minute you're in heaven and the tears flow. I survived the suffering. And he wipes it away forever. Never again will you suffer because you are now with the good shepherd and he will care for you in a way that you can't experience on the earth. We can't see him here. We walk by faith, right? There we will see his provision, his protection, his care, his love. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. Psalm 27.4 says this. One thing that I have asked of the Lord, David, his only desire, the greatest desire, one thing I have asked of the Lord, that, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. <laughs> Did David get an answer to that or what? Man! And by the way, he's the guy that God said he has a heart after me. So that's something we all should desire. Amen? Amen. Praise God. Father, tonight, thank you for this time together as the body of Christ at Vero Bible Fellowship. What a privilege to be back with the body and what a privilege for us to break the bread of life, to come together, to, to, to love one another, but also to study the Word of God, to find and understand the knowledge that you reveal by the Holy Spirit and then to skillfully apply it to practical living. Help us to apply it, Lord, as we leave tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.